coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. But for just a regular average Joe, like you or me, mm-hmm. eating a higher percent of protein, um, you can still in, be in a state of ketosis. Um, your ketone levels might not be as high, um, but if your goal is to build lean body mass and, and if you are somebody that works out in the gym and things like that, you, you need more protein and it's hard to get fat eating protein. Um, you get fat cause you eat too much fat or too many carbs or a combination of, of the two. Um, because I'll tell you, we put people on protein sparing modified fast, which is basically all protein and no fat and carbs. And those people's body fat will melt. <laughs> so, um, it's hard to get fat eating just protein. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Jamie Seaman, aka Dr. Fit and Fabulous. She's a board-certified OBGYN with a background in nutrition, exercise, and health science. We discussed her health journey into keto and carnivore, misconceptions around eating red meat, advantages of carb restriction, her morning eating and fasting routine, the importance of eating protein, and her one tip to get your body back to what it once was. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Jamie Seaman, and I know you will too. So enjoy the interview and have a great day. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Jamie Seaman on. Dr. Fit and Fabulous, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. It's so good to be here. Thanks for coming on. Um, This has been a long time coming. We finally made it work. And uh, perhaps uh, before we get into some questions, why don't you touch on sort of your background, how you got into um, OBGYN and into, you know, keto carnivore world. Uh, just to let the audience know. Absolutely. So I work in my everyday life as a obstetrician, gynecologist. I deliver babies, do surgery, see women for healthcare maintenance and, uh, and all that good stuff. But my kind of entrance into the keto carnivore world really came on a very personal level. So I grew up in Nebraska as a young girl. I was a three sport athlete, super active my whole life and left high school and went to college to play division one college softball for the university of Nebraska. And there I got my degree in nutrition and exercise science, but young, you know, as a young girl growing up, um, nobody ever talked to me, talked to me about nutrition or how to fuel my body until I got to college. And, um, you know, I was getting this degree in nutrition and exercise science with a definitely an interest of going into medicine, but kind of thinking, well, if I don't go to medical school, you know, then what will I do? And college was the first time that, you know, my eyes were really open to nutrition, but my traditional, even my bachelor of science in nutrition degree, um, it was very much the kind of low fat, you know, dogma, um, fat causes heart disease. And, you know, even eating at the training table as a division college one athlete, it was like, put the protein on your plate and then fill your plate with all the colors, you know, eat as many colors as you can. It's all about the colors, eat all the plants, eat all the fruits and vegetables. And I'll be the first to admit, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and I didn't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. I ate a lot of, you know, rice at Roni, pasta Roni, (laughs) like hamburger helper without the hamburger in it. (laughs) I mean, I grew up as a carb addict. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. And so then I left, um, I left the university. I got married to my husband, Ben, he works as a police officer. 
we moved to Omaha. I started medical school. And here was this huge shift physically in my life from going from being a, uh, you know, very active D1 uh, athlete to now I'm sedentary and I'm sitting in a classroom and I'm studying for long hours of the day. And all of a sudden I was really struggling to maintain my body weight. And so just like I had learned before, I went over to the gym and started doing cardio and started lifting and, but, but I struggled, you know, for the first couple of years of medical school. And then my husband and I decided to get pregnant with our first baby. And during my pregnancy, I failed my glucose testing. Um, I ended up having, you know, a close to a nine pound baby. And then we would go on to have three children in about like 58 months. So all of our girls are 23 months apart. We thought, let's just have our kids now. Let's, you know, get the baby stage over with. So fast forward to my third pregnancy and, um, you know, from the outside, I didn't really look unhealthy. You know, I was still working out. I had signed up for some half marathons to try to maintain my weight, but I had hypothyroidism. I was on thyroid replacement. And, um, after my third pregnancy, I was diagnosed with pre-diabetes. And so this was a huge kind of eye-opening experience for me as, here I am, a medical doctor. I've got a degree. I've got a degree in nutrition and exercise science. Mm. And I'm sitting here telling patients, you have to eat right and move right. And I'm like the worst example in the world. Right. But also the fact that I just, I didn't look obese. I didn't look unhealthy was like, gosh, we're really missing something here. And so I set out kind of on this personal journey to figure out how to fix my own health. And I started eating kind of like a whole 30 type diet, then paleo, then, you know, more of a ketogenic diet. And then a year or two later, really settled on more of like a carnivore based ketogenic diet. And my hemoglobin A1C is 4.9. I'm off my thyroid medication. I feel the best I've ever felt. My brain functions the best. I sleep amazing. But I think the biggest kind of like manifestation out of all of this is what really started is just eating right and moving right. It, it spilled over into every area of my life. So I practice medicine differently. Uh, you know, my relationships with my friends and family are better. I'm a better mother. I started pursuing things in my life that I never would have if I was tired and didn't feel well. And um, it opened a lot of opportunities. And now I'm really just on a rampage really, because I think we've gotten it wrong for so long in medicine and our traditional medical model isn't here to help anyone. You know, it's, uh, it's good at kind of keeping people alive with chronic medical conditions, but it's not very good at prevention. And so my medical practice is very much, you know, prevention based and, and lifestyle forward. And, um, I, I hope there's a lot more people that will join my bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, uh, when did you make the shift to keto carnivore? Like what, how many years ago was that? So it was in, so my daughter was born in 2015. So okay. right after she was born, pretty much a couple months after she was born, I started a whole 30 and um, of course, whole food. I think, you know, regardless if you want to argue about carnivore or vegetarian or anywhere in between, right. I think we all, all agree that eating whole foods and, and uh, avoiding anything that's processed is, is you're probably going to do well, right? So <laughs> that's where I started. And, uh, you know, some of the weight came off. I was still breastfeeding at the time. So I was having to, having to be very careful about calorie restriction, but I did that. Then I thought, um, well, everyone talks really highly about paleo and it, it would force me to focus on protein a little more. So I kind of went to paleo 
And then I realized that I liked dairy and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple months later, then I switched to ketogenic and ketogenic was like really where my husband and I hit our stride. Like the weight was coming off. The energy was amazing. Um, I felt like my brain was functioning on a whole nother level. I always tell people, I felt like I could smell colors. (laughs) Like I, um, I just felt really, really good. Um, but at this time I really wasn't focusing a lot on working out or resistance training. Like this was just like straight diet. Right. And I got off my thyroid medicine. My hemoglobin A1C was improving. And then it was in 2018. So I had started kind of this transition in 2015. So 2018, I started hearing about the carnivore diet. And, um, I think actually it might've been Sean Baker that I Mm. introduced to. And I'm like, these people are lunatics. (laughs) (laughs) Like no way that a completely, completely meat-based diet could be healthy. Like there's no way. And so, you know, I watched for a couple of months and then I thought, and I'm, and I'm always very forward with people. Listen, I'll be, I'll be a test, you know, dummy. I say, be your own expert, try it for yourself, see how you feel, what results do you get and figure out what works best for you? Because what works for me and what works for somebody else are, are different. We're all built from different genetics men and women obviously respond differently. And so in November of 2018, I did a 30 days of carnivore. I was like, I'm just going to go carnivore for 30 days. And the first when 14, you, oh, the first 14 days, I dropped like a ton of body fat. Like oh, I was, I'm sure I was like melting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I honestly think it's because I, I call carnivore basically like keto for dummies, because what it does is it takes off the table all the stupid like keto treats and the cheese and the nuts and all the things that we just tend to kind of sabotage ourselves with. So I did really well for 14 days. And then I just started to really get bored with texture. I was like, I don't know. I just want like a crunchy salad or something. Cause I was really eating just like beef and salmon mostly. Yeah. I was going to say, were you doing pretty much like nose to tail and then some salmon or just like, yeah, so it wasn't even nose to tail. It was like really muffle meat eggs Um, I wasn't doing organs at that time. And so, but after 14 days, I just got bored from a texture standpoint, but I finished the 30 days. Um, I looked dang good at the Mm -hmm. end of November. Here I am like coming (laughs) into the holiday season. So then in December I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be mostly carnivore, but I'm just going to start to like add back in, you know, little things here and there that are still ketogenic, but it at least gave me a little bit more leeway through the holidays from a social perspective. And, um, and then that just really clicked for us. It was like, okay, this is perfect because most of our meals were going to center it around this, you know, nutrient dense animal food. But if we want to have, you know, a few berries or a few Brussels sprouts or a few mushrooms or whatever it was, you know, beat ourselves up of it. And my husband and I, we don't have any sort of like, we don't have an autoimmune condition. My gut, you know, can tolerate plants fine. Like I didn't have a real reason to be like strictly carnivore. Right. So then when springtime hit, um, (laughs) Paul Saladino, we met at um, KetoCon and I'll never oh. forget this moment. He practically like slapped this mushroom out of my hand, like a stuffed mushroom that I was eating. <laughs> and him and I got into this great debate about how, you know, fungus really isn't a plant and this, that, and the other. Oh but I just started to see people in the carnivore world. It was like so dogmatic about like plants are so toxic, like you can't eat plants. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I buy that, you know, all the way. And so I have kind of stayed with this, like what I call carnivore ish lifestyle ever since, 
you know, December of 2018 and it works for us. It's really, you know, as a woman, I think it really forces you to prioritize protein, which I think is important um, because you can eat a ketogenic diet and be, you know, still low in protein. And if your, your goals are body composition and gaining lean body mass, then, you know, you would maybe do better eating higher protein. So it's something that's really worked for us. I see it work for a lot of patients. Men love it because I think men are just naturally, uh, you know, good meat eaters, but women, I mean, I do have a handful of women in my own practice that have aversions to meat. It's a texture thing. There's only certain animal proteins they'll eat, but I think it is such a great lifestyle for so many people and for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I sort of took a similar path in the sense that I'm not like, I don't have an autoimmune issue, but I've been very active my whole life. And like a year ago, I started to get into like the whole carnivore-ish diet. And, uh, it's definitely made a difference in my body and my energy. Um, what would you say, what are some misconceptions around meat maybe, um, that are out there? Uh, because you know, the, the, the mainstream is like, oh, you're having that steak, then you got to wait a week to have another one. (laughs) And what would you say some of the misconceptions are around, uh, having a meat-based diet? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I hear is that red meat causes heart disease, you know, red meat drives atherosclerosis and is going to clog your arteries or cause you to have a stroke. And certainly when I got my nutrition degree, that's what they told us, right? They really were like, eat more lean meats, you know, eat fish, um, very fish based, eat poultry, chicken, and really limit red meat to like, you know, like once per week. Right. (laughs) And so going to the carnivore world, all of a sudden, you know, like we're buying like a whole cow. Like, I mean, we're like burning through the beef in our house. And when you look, you know, statistically at how much red meat we're eating, we're actually eating less red meat now than we were like in the 1980s. Yet the rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, all of these things have more than tripled. And so when you look historically, what we did with the modern American diet is we really vilified fat, particularly red meats and things like, you know, butter. And we had to find replacements for them in the, in the diet and food manufacturers are smart. So they took these, you know, plant seed oils, canola oil, sunflower oil, and started adding those to foods in place of animal fats. And then of course, adding flowers and sugars. So they could slap low fat on the front of a product and, and put the American Heart Association label on it and sell it to you. And it was just processed garbage. And so Um, now it's hard because patients come into my clinic and they think that butter and beef are going to clog their arteries. And what I've seen clinically, and, and of course I've had the advantage of being able to lab test myself like over and over and over and over. So from a physiologic standpoint in my own body, um, you know, my hemoglobin A1C is 4.9. So my blood sugars are normal. Um, my cholesterol levels actually came down. So when we talk about cholesterol levels, um, the only cholesterol that we tend to see a, a shift in, you know, of course, is this LDL cholesterol or the bad cholesterol. And there's this thought that, that it's LDL directly that drives atherosclerosis. And it's really not, you need inflammation, you need hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, you need all these other things to create this perfect storm. My LDL did go down. So I'm kind of like the outlier. So my LDL, mm-hmm. um, what, like it hovers between like 90 and 120 on a carnivore based diet. Um, but I have seen patients with LDLs in the 200, 400, 500 range on a, on an animal based diet. But what you also see on that lipid panel is that their HDL cholesterol is good. Their triglycerides are low. Their blood sugars are normal. Their fasting insulin is normal. 
So we call that a type A cholesterol pattern, and that has not been shown to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. And when we look at aging and the aging process, actually the people that die of heart attacks are usually on the extreme. So they're the really high or the really low. They're not those people in the middle. And um, the same goes for like risk of dementia as we age, higher cholesterol is actually protective to our brain. Literally all of our sex hormones. So as, as a female you know, doctor, I really care about things like estrogen and testosterone and progesterone. Those are things that are literally made from cholesterol and our body actually makes most of the cholesterol that we need. So the dietary cholesterol pales in comparison when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about cholesterol. And so, um, it's been sad to watch what's happened to, to red meat and animal fats, but usually when these patients come in with an LDL of 500, I'll send them to get a coronary artery calcium scan and it almost well, pretty much every patient comes back as zero. <laughs> and so their arteries are not clogged. And so the hardest part is that most of our nutrition research are epidemiology studies that really, a lot of them pull patients, you know, they say like, what, how many times did you eat eggs in the last year? Okay, well, I don't remember what I ate last week. <laughs> how many times I ate eggs in the last 365 days? And so these are, I mean, these are poor studies. These are poor population-based studies. And the thing about, not even carnivore, but just ketogenic in particular, is that nobody has done studies where they've excluded the carbohydrates. Mm. So they'd say, oh, it's the hot dogs, it's the steak, it's the whatever, the processed meats and red meat, it's, that's what's causing the heart disease. But in none of these studies did they ever exclude flowers and sugars and vegetable oils. And so that's where I'm excited now to kind of see this research starting to swing um, and to really look at the physiology. And I know Sean Baker's been, I, I donated to his, uh, to mm. his fundraiser, his MeterX fundraiser, you know, he's trying to fund these studies because yes, as a clinician, we love evidence-based medicine, but when you do a study, it takes about 17 years for that to translate into clinical practice. When you're talking so about long. that study, going through all these different organizations like American Cardiology Association, having them say, oh yes, okay, there's enough evidence to recommend this. So I've had to stick my neck out as a medical provider, you know, with some of this stuff, because we, we, we don't have the information, you know, we don't have the, we don't have the studies, but I can tell you anecdotally that practicing medicine day in and day out and, and working with patients on their diet and making these changes that we've just talked about shifting to nutrient dense animal foods, eliminating flour, sugars, and vegetable oils, the numbers get better on the labs, the weight comes down, they feel better, their skin clears up, their joints don't hurt. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on about, you know, these success stories and um, it's nutrition is very powerful. Nutrition really is the one thing that you can change that will significantly impact your health in a short period of time. You know, even within seven days, we see changes in the immune system function in inflammatory markers. I mean, even within seven days, it's pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing what you could do when you just tweak your nutrition a little bit. Um, what, what, as far as lab tests, do you, are there like maybe three to four lab tests that you really like prescribe to, uh, that you recommend for most of your clients? Yeah. So most of my patients on an annual basis, we do fasting labs and we are checking a fasting glucose level, fasting insulin levels and a lipid panel. That's kind of like my super, super, super basic, like where are we at from a metabolic standpoint? And we want to see low triglycerides, high HDL, the LDL, we don't care about as much. If a patient has pre-existing cardiovascular disease or a strong family history of cardiovascular disease, there are some genetic mutations 
you know, with familial hypercholesterolemia and things like that, then that patient should get something called an advanced lipid panel, an NMR panel. There's Boston Heart. There's lots of names for it, but it actually looks at their lipid size. And it also looks at other inflammatory markers like LP little a high sensitivity CRP. It looks at their apolipo A and B, but that's kind of getting, uh, you know, a little more advanced on a basic, basic, basic level. I think every patient should have fasting glucose, fasting insulin and lipid panel checked at their annual exam. I usually will check also basic chemistry panel, um, you know, look at their red blood cell, white blood cell counts. Um, and I usually screen um, hemoglobin A1Cs in these patients as well. And then kind of based on, you know, for women in particular, I screen for thyroid a lot. Um, we can look at other uh, inflammatory markers. So high sensitivity CRP, like I mentioned earlier, um, can be helpful. Um, but I think at a basic level, most patients have no idea what their fasting glucose and insulin are. And those things in particular, you know, we see insulin resistance develop for 10 years prior to prediabetes. And so that luckily was me in my thirties, I caught it. I was on the five year train to type two diabetes and I, and I was able to stop the train. And that's what I want to be able to do as a provider is let's stop it from happening before it happens instead of getting down the road when a lot of the damage has already been done. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And just taking these basic tests, um, can go a long way. Like you said, you, it stopped you from going down a, a bad road. And sometimes you need like a wake up call and, and it's a lot of people wait till it's too late, you know, like, um, you rather get on that earlier. It's never too late, you know? Yeah, no, it's definitely never too late. I had a patient just this year who had been a type two diabetic for quite a while. She was the woman. She really, she didn't look that overweight. Um, and she was in a randomized clinical trial at a, a local uh, prestigious university hospital for a diabetes med. And she came to see me. She said, the study just ended. I'm done with the study. I said, well, how did things turn out? And she said, well, they, it was okay. My hemoglobin A1C is like 8.1. Okay. Which for anybody that knows diabetes is a hemoglobin A1C 6.5 or above is diabetes. So that's pretty poor control to be honest. And she got the actual medication uh, in the trial. She was in the, the treatment arm. And so I put her on a ketogenic diet. I said, okay, well, we're going to, you're not on that med. She was, I think only on metformin at the time she saw me. I said, okay, you're going to stay on your metformin. I'm going to put you on this diet. And then I want to see you back in 90 days. And in 90 days, she dropped her hemoglobin A1C to like 6.7 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she came in and she was like, I was just in this study for like a year. And like you did that in 90 days. And she felt amazing. I mean, she felt amazing. And that was like, it's so fun for me to sit in clinic and watch patients just like spill, you know, their experience. And it's like, Oh my God, I'm sleeping better. I'm feeling better. My energy is better. This is the easiest thing I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> and I mean, it's just, it's, it's really cool to watch that. And you said you put her on a keto, keto ketogenic diet. What would you say the basis around that was just like, yeah, eat, so I'm you know. board certified in ketogenic therapy. And for anybody with insulin resistance, um, doing a period of carbohydrate restriction helps bring the fasting insulin down, helps restore normal glycemia. The goal isn't necessarily to be zero carb or right. even low carb for the rest of their life. So like for me, you know, in particular, so now my hemoglobin A1C is like 4.9, but I add carbs back in strategically pre or post workout or something like that. Uh, for that purpose, but you have to restore the insulin sensitivity first. And so it's good for these patients to actually get into a period of ketosis for usually I like them to commit to it for at least 12 weeks. And, um, and that is because they'll go through this period of adaptation, where they're actually teaching their cells 
how to lay down the cellular machinery to actually be a good fat burner and how to oxidize fat efficiently and effectively. And once you can teach your body to do that, then you have dual fuel sources. You have the ability to flip back and forth and burn glucose and burn fat, depending on what your activity level is. And so that's what we're really trying to do is when, when I say a patient has insulin resistance, it means their body has completely forgotten how to burn fat. And we want to, we want to, uh, have them have that capability. And usually that takes, well, I mean, everyone's obviously a different, every different situation, but like 12 weeks, you'd say, yeah, it depends how insulin resistant they are. I mean, Mm -hmm. some patients, you know, it can take many, many months. Um, but you know, I like to start with short measurable goals. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, even if you can get them to, you know, commit for four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, um, they, they will start to see those nice, slow improvements in, uh, in their physiology. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, it's like, you can have these five-star meals. You can have a ribeye every night, right? (laughs) People think that like eating healthy, you have to necessarily restrict like, um, you know, not so bad. I mean, Sean Baker, I had him on my podcast and he wakes up and has a, you know, a steak dinner every, every morning, pretty much, you know? So, well, and I think, you know, America kind of did that to us saying like, oh, you have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and breakfast foods traditionally, uh, right? It's like car-based like meat for breakfast. You (laughs) eat like cereal and Pop-Tarts and bagels and toast and things like that. And so it's, uh, you have to, to, to break out of some of those. The the food marketers are smart, right? They know that if they get you on something like that, like a car-based, that that's just going to lead to more hunger. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Your blood sugar will crash and you'll need more. Right. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Um, well, what, what, why don't we go into routine? I love, I'm a big morning routine guy. What's your routine. And then maybe like your eating schedule. And I don't know if you do some fasting from time to time and things like that. Yeah. So I wake up every, uh, Monday through Friday, I wake up at four 30 in the morning and I head to the gym, um, completely fasted. Um, the only thing I take to the gym is electrolytes. So, uh, usually about two grams of sodium, um, some magnesium, potassium. I use the, the Redmond Relight. It's just easy for me. So I work out fasted. I do, um, resistance training four days per week. So two days, upper body, two days, lower body. And, um, and then the other day I usually do some sort of high intensity interval training. And I typically take the weekends off because my husband works and I have kid activities (laughs) and things like that. But, um, and so I go to the gym, I work out from five to six, I come home, I shower, uh, every morning might be different because sometimes I have 7am surgery or I have to go, you know, deliver a baby or something like that. But some, some mornings I get to take my children to school, but I typically will stay fasted. Um, I've played with this idea of, you know, doing intermittent fasting, do you eat your calories early in the day versus late in the day? Well, of course, like traditionally in America, you know, the family meal is dinner. And so it was like, um, hard for me to think about eating my calories early in the day, but I've played with it before. Mm. And, um, and I, I do honestly think that my body responds better doing my two meals, um, breakfast and lunch, because I work out at 5am, it's best to get that nutrition and, you know, immediately post-workout, but, um, but some days I will fast till lunch. So typically when I get home from the gym, all I've had is electrolytes. Um, I'm not a huge coffee drinker. I just, I just, I don't know, hot beverages, but I've started to incorporate a little more coffee in my adult life. I love nitro coffee, (laughs) um, with just a little bit of heavy cream. Um, like a cold cold brew, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same way. I don't like hot coffee. I can't. I can't. I mean, I will on like a real cold day or something, or like I mean, I'll have a latte or something. But, um, but usually I don't. I'm just not a coffee drinker, and I know that's a, a big part of a lot of people's morning routines. But it's not. It's not like I'm specifically avoiding it. I just. Me I'm too. Incorporated. You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then my first meal is typically at lunchtime, mm-hmm. and I will have usually four, six, eight ounces of protein, depending on, you know, kind of where I'm trying to eat with my macronutrients. And then I might have a small amount of, of, uh, veggies or something with it. Uh, or it may just be meat. A lot of times I'll just take a Pyrex bowl of ground beef, you know, with some Redmond, uh, real salt, maybe like an egg or two. I mean, those are easy things for me to just keep in the fridge or to kind of eat on the, eat on the run. I, I eat at my desk a lot in clinics and what, you know, when I'm charting and then, I, I try not to snack. I think snacking is really emotional, but if I um, wasn't able to eat lunch or something like that, I have a bag of uh, biltong, like jerky in my mm-hmm. desk. So that's an easy thing for me to grab. Um, or I will have nuts or seeds or things like that on occasion, but, but mostly like jerkies and things like that is what I'm eating if I'm running on the run. Right. Dinner is usually uh, steak or salmon, wild caught salmon. Um, we do a ton of eggs in our house. And so how our family meals work is that Ben and I will typically, uh, get our, our, our meat, our protein portion. The kids eat the same protein that we're eating. And then they might put like some blueberries on their plate, or uh, they really don't eat a lot of like bread and pasta and things like that. I mean, they do have some carbs, but they'll put like more fruits and vegetables on their plate. Um, you know, or some cheese. We love like halloumi cheese. Um, or last night I chopped up some little cherry tomatoes with fresh mozzarella and we have that with Sam with wild caught salmon. So we eat a lot of the same things in our house. People would maybe look at our diet and think it was like really boring or mundane, <laughs> but you know, we really find that people who eat a lot of the same things, it creates just consistency. Um, I think it reduces decision fatigue. Um, that's one thing I find with patients is they, they get on Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest, and they think that their meals have to be really fancy and exotic. And I think that's overwhelming as a Mm -hmm. mom of three girls who's super busy. I don't have time for that. Like, but meat, okay. It's easy. Like it takes me 17 minutes to cook some salmon in the oven. It takes me, you know, uh, eight minutes to cook a medium rare steak. I mean, that's, it's, it's easy, it's fast and it's nutritious. And so that's usually how our meals work. I try not to eat after dinner and I just wake up and do the same thing the next day. The weekends, my eating schedule is pretty similar. Um, but if it's a day I don't work out, then I really try not to add any sort of carbs in on those days. So if I'm going to have any whole food carbs, some berries, you know, or something like that, then I, I try to do it on a day when I'm doing more intense exercise. You occasionally throw in like a cheat day. I noticed on your YouTube channel, you there was some <laughs> the, the one video. video. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, she's on YouTube, and then I'm like, the one video was the, the donuts. What? 20, yeah. You're like, I thought this girl was a meat eater. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh. No, the, the story behind that is that that was the day after Mrs. America, and the oh. the other person in that video is uh, his name is Bartley Weaver. He was on NBC Titan Games with me, and he is a professional eater. Um, I have oh. never in my life seen a human, uh, consume food and calories like that man does. And, uh, and like the pink box donut, uh, owner, uh, was, was very gracious and gave us a bunch of free product. And, um, I am not 
I am not so dogmatic that I won't eat a donut. I will right. be the first to admit I felt like garbage. I know. I was thinking garbage. That Did you day. have one donut or 25 donuts? I had like <laughs> one bite of like 10 donuts because of course I wanted to try all the different flavors. Yeah. But um, no, my husband and I will occasionally, you know, like if we're at a social event, you know, we might totally consciously, you know, have a couple tortilla chips or, right. you know, my kids might have real ice cream occasionally. Like we live in reality. Um, as I've gone through this transition since 2015, like I had mentioned, I feel like crap when I eat anything like that. Right. Um, like my face will break out. I sleep horrible. I have worn a continuous glucose monitor for, for uh, a bunch of different occasions. And I've been, I show people blood sugars. I'm like, look, I like had this drink and like, look at my blood sugars, or I had a slice of pizza, look at my blood sugars. And I'm really just showing people that, um, you can actually really correlate that a lot with symptoms. So I find in women, like I'll put a continuous glucose monitor on them and they thought they were having anxiety. And what they were having was these huge blood sugar spikes and crashes. And mm. it was they could correlate it. They're like, okay, this was the moment I was feeling anxious. Well, my blood sugar was tanking mm. and their body was putting out all these, you know, stimulatory hormones to try to get the blood sugar back up. So I think that's super, um, a super amazing tool that can sometimes really hold people you know, accountable, but no, I mean, I've had, I've had things like that on occasion since 2015, but <laughs> I, it, it's horrible. It makes me feel horrible. <laughs> right. That's the thing. Like, I think if you're in good health and you're metabolically like flexible and you, and you cheat like that, you, you feel like crap. And then you realize, okay, now I, I don't ever want to do that again. And, and you just go back to your normal way of eating. I think then, then you're in a good state when that, when that happens. Yeah. 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 So wh why don't we talk a little bit about I, in the misconceptions around, um, women and meat. I feel like, um, like they think that only men should be eating meat. And, and I, obviously as a woman doctor, you probably obviously think the opposite. Well, you know, it's been interesting for me because I grew up as an athlete. I have a very athletic build. And I think this kind of like, there's a reason that they call a big muscular dude, a meathead. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think like there's just this perception in people's brains that like meat is for bodybuilders or like men need more meat than women do. Um, it's like a manly thing to like eat a right. steak. Um, but in women's health in particular, women are under eating protein. And when we look at the macronutrients, protein is the one that you really shouldn't sacrifice if you under eat protein, not only are you at risk for losing lean body mass and muscle, which as we age, muscle becomes kind of an organ of longevity. If you want to eat more calories and carbs in particular, it would be very advantageous for you to have some muscle on your body. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you under eat protein, you're at risk of losing that. But also when we look at the precursors, like for instance, serotonin, um, which is one of our neurotransmitters, a lot of these things that are, are made from protein. If you're deficient in tryptophan and some of these amino acids, it really could be causing a lot of problems in your body. And in the literature, I think the recommendations for minimums of protein consumption is way too low because you're assuming that your body is utilizing, uh, you know, all of that protein. And as we age, as our gastric pH changes, as our body just becomes less efficient, we actually have a decrease in the amount of the amino acids that we actually utilize. So 
what a woman has to eat at 50 years old compared to what she had to eat at 30 years old, she actually has to eat more protein after menopause mm. than she did before menopause. And so you take somebody that wasn't a good meat eater, you throw them into menopause. Oh, they are feeling it. They are gaining weight right in the abdomen. They are tired. They life is not, not life is not good. And so I've really been a voice and an advocate for women to not be afraid of eating protein in the ketogenic world. You know, the traditional ketogenic diet was 20% protein. And that's because half of the proteins that we eat, half those amino acids actually do stimulate an insulin release. They're glucogenic. And so when these kids who had epilepsy were put on this ketogenic diet, they truly did have to keep their protein percentage low because if you're stimulating, you know, glucose and insulin, um, those, those children could have seizures, but for just a regular average Joe, like you or me mm -hmm. eating a higher percent of protein, um, you can still in, be in a state of ketosis. Um, your ketone levels might not be as high. Um, but if your goal is to build lean body mass and, and if you are somebody that works out in the gym and things like that, you, you need more protein and it's hard to get fat eating protein. Um, you get fat cause you eat too much fat or too many carbs or a combination of the, of the two. Um, because I'll tell you, we put people on protein sparing modified fast, which is basically all protein and no fat and carbs. And those people's body fat will melt. <laughs> so, um, it's hard to get fat eating just protein and steak does not turn into cake inside the bloodstream. I hear that misconception all the time. Well, protein just turns into blood sugar. Well, it does in a sense, but, um, it, it's not cake. And so I think that all women need to be eating 30 grams of protein at least three times a day. For me in my clinic, 90 grams is like, I don't care how little or tiny you are. I feel like 90 grams is like the basement floor. And if you can eat up to a gram per pound of your body weight, so I'm currently like somewhere between 160, 165. If I can eat 160 to 165 grams of protein, fantastic. Now that's, people will say, oh my gosh, that's a lot of protein. But if you break that down into three meals, that's 50 to 60 grams of protein with each meal. And, you know, uh, 25 grams of protein is like four and a half ounces of meat. So that's, I mean, that's like eight ounces of meat. That's really not that much. Um, but even if you can just get 30, three times a day, I think you're, you're doing well. Yeah. I love that. I think if you, I always say protein should be like the staple of, of, of your plate, um, as throughout the day and also the satiating effect of protein as well, you know, because I I'm a big advocate of you know, doing some type of fasting. And, um, if you want to make that fast a lot easier and you're having some good quality protein, it makes it, 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 you're, it can go a long way. Yes, absolutely. And, and real whole protein. So not bars, not shakes, mm -hmm. um, eating actual real whole protein is what provides that satiation and, um, it's, it's better quality. And, um, what about your experience? Um, since you're an OBGYN, I figured I would ask you a little bit about, um, women and, and even men and staying fertile. Uh, what are some of the best ways that, you know, as you age, let's say, um, especially if you want to have kids later in life, uh, to stay fertile and, 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 you know, just to have good hormonal balance. Yeah. So infertility is on the rise, um, not just in women, but in men too, we're seeing men with, uh, really poor semen analysis, not enough sperm, not the right shape of sperm, not sperm that are swimming in the right direction. And in women, um, infertility is typically related to what we call anovulation. So not releasing an egg and we're seeing infertility. It's really split 50, 50 between men and women. And why is this happening? Well, first of all, 
people are waiting longer in life now to have kids. And that's a societal thing. You know, uh, women are, are waiting uh, into their thirties to have their first child. And as you know, our, our prime fertile years are, are really in our twenties and even in our late teens. And so um, that's, that's an unfortunate part of our society. But when we think about, you know, nutritionally and how nutrition and things like that impact our fertility, um, the standard American diet is lowering men's testosterone. It's causing poor semen. It's causing erectile dysfunction. And in women, insulin resistance, you know, causes things like PCOS. And like I said, not ovulating. And if you take a woman like that and then get them pregnant, um, it's an unhealthy pregnancy. We're seeing higher rates of preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, all of these things. So it's all a downstream kind of domino effect. When we think about, you know, a woman's body in particular, basically every single month, her body is sensing if this is a good time to get pregnant. And so when we see dysregulation of the menstrual cycle or, or not a regular cycle, that is definitely a sign that something is off. Right. Um, and, um, when we think about how to eat for a pregnancy, when a woman, uh, you know, we should basically eat like we are pregnant, right? So what, we, what does a pregnant woman need? Well, we need more protein. Okay. So that's a big deal as prioritizing protein, in the diet, we need fat, all of our sex hormones, and you're making 30 times the estrogen in pregnancy as you are not pregnant. Mm. It's all made from cholesterol. So we need these, these fats from butter and eggs and liver and beef and these, and these types of fats animal food has more bioavailable nutrients. So if you're trying to get these nutrients, you like, for instance, like DHA, which is you know, your animal-based omega-3 compared to ALA or EPA, which comes from plants, um, you would have to eat way more. And then there's people with genetic SNPs and variations, like me in particular, I found out I have one where I don't convert uh, uh, plant-based omega-3s into DHA well. So I need to be, it's funny when I did all this genetic testing, I, I figured out why I feel so damn good on an animal-based diet. Cause I have like all these genes where I don't convert plant vitamin A well, I don't convert plant omega-3s well. So it all makes sense why I feel, feel so good eating this lifestyle. But um back to the question. So you need more protein, you need more, more fat. When we look at micronutrients, um, one of the best things uh, that a woman could be eating is some liver, like one ounce per day is probably all you need for the, for the vitamin A and the B vitamins. And it's mm. got fat soluble vitamins. Eggs are an amazing thing. And so when we're thinking about eating for fertility, uh, we should be eating like that. Like we want to get pregnant, even though we don't, right? <laughs> Please mm. plan your pregnancies. 50% of them are unplanned. But, um, oh, and be careful about that. I've seen people who go ketogenic carnivore and have surprise pregnancies because oh. suddenly your body is like, a, you know, a ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, you have to think about what nutrients are required to grow another human being. That's how you should be eating all the time. If you're, yeah. if, you, if you're worried about your fertility and men too, men, I think downplay fertility a lot. And, um, the, the semen analysis, I've seen improvements with nutrition, men in particular, like they need more B vitamins, um, they need more zinc. So there's, there's so many reasons why we're seeing, you know, poor sperm production now in men, but it's, it can be fixed with diet. And uh, um, other than diet, what other things do you think they can do to help um, be more fertile and help with pregnancy per se, like sleep stress, obviously those things play a role as well. Yeah, hundred percent. So I sleep is a very underutilized tool when it comes to health mm -hmm. because literally our growth hormone and things like that, are, most of them are made in our sleep and that sets our circadian rhythm and our circadian rhythm is what determines when, a, when these other hormones get released, you know, in a pulse cell fashion. And so, um, 
sleep is super important. And now we're seeing, you know, smartphones and computers and all this blue light exposure and people are drinking, you know, cans with more than 300 milligrams of caffeine and all these things that disrupt our circadian rhythm. And then we're inside, you know, buildings and cars and we're not getting natural sunlight. And so sleep is super important when it comes to just not only fertility, but just health in general. That's one thing that I focus on a lot in my practice. I call them the five pillars. So for me, the five pillars, and you have to focus on all of them at some point, but the five pillars for me are nutrition, movement, stress, sleep. And then my last one is what I call environment. And environment is like, uh, it could be things like toxic relationships and things like that, but, but really more like environmental xenoestrogens and BPA and a lot of the chemical exposures that we um, surround ourselves with. And so those are kind of my five pillars. So sleep is super important. Stress, um, stress is good. So we, we purposefully stress ourselves a lot, right? Fasting is stress, going to the gym and doing deadlifts. That's a stress. Mm -hmm. um, stress is good, but we have to figure out how to be, uh, resilient and how to recover from stress. And so you should always be focusing just as much on, uh, recovery as you are on training. And so, you know, if you're somebody that goes to the gym and works out, you need to be balancing that with things that recover you. And whether that's like breath work or meditation or yoga or massage or like whatever it is, but you have to have outlets for that. And, you know, emotional stress, job stress, relationship stress, um, people have to figure out how to deal with that. Because if you are constantly driving your sympathetic nervous system and constantly turning on kind of that, what we call flight or fight switch, um, your, your body is not going to be utilizing glucose. Well, it's not going to be sleeping well. Right. So it's a total domino effect. And that's why all the five pillars really matter. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of stress is, is good. You want to be resilient. I, people ask me, I do some uh, cold plunging and things like that. I don't know if you do any of that stuff. Um, I do some hot sauna, um, and like fasting and working out, those are all great stresses. Um, and I feel like you're, like you said, your body's more resilient to handle other things when you, when you expose yourself to those every once in a while. Absolutely. Um, I got, I, I feel like I could keep asking questions, but one of the main questions I ask at the end of, uh, my interviews is, um, what would you give like one tip to a middle-aged individual man or woman who's maybe put on 10, 15 pounds and they're looking to get their body back to like what it once was when maybe they were in their twenties and thirties. <laughs> so I would say, oh, there's a lot of things I would say. <laughs> like my very I know. Patient. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's just, it's just start because it's, I, what I find a lot of people doing is they try to like, they want to research and read and go down all these different rabbit holes and, and just start, I mean, you're going to mess up, just start making changes. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not a tree. If you don't like where you're at, move, do something different. And you can't expect to get, you know, if you just do what you've always done, you'll get the same results every time. And so if you don't like the way your body looks, you don't like the way you feel, then you have to change something. And when I see people who are successful in making these changes, I'll tell you right now, um, your circle of influence is a big deal. So the five people that you surround yourself with most of the time, you, you actually literally become them. You do mm -hmm. the things that they do. And so it might mean that um, maybe you need uh, some new friends at the gym. Maybe you're you know, spouse, you need to have a real heart to heart about some of the changes that have to be made. Maybe you need a new job. Maybe you 
but you have to change something. And sometimes these are really, you know, small changes. And sometimes these are really, you know, big impactful changes, but you can literally be anything in the world you want to be if you're willing to work for it. Um, but just start, just start doing it, figure it out, be your own expert. And um, it's, it's worth it. Health is a hot commodity because it cannot be bought. It cannot be bought. You can buy a lot of damn things on the internet. You can buy, <laughs> sex, you can buy babies, you can buy spouses. Yeah. You, can't, you cannot buy health. You can't. Yeah. I love that. Love that. Well, this was great. Dr. Seaman, where's the best place for people to find you? And uh, my other question was, do you take clients, both men and women, or do you just work with women? Yeah. So I, um, am located in Omaha, Nebraska. I work at mid city OBGYN. And so if you're interested in becoming my patient, I don't do telemedicine currently, but I've had patients fly in to see me. Um, I do some, uh, online coaching groups that involve nutrition and things like that. And I'll probably be launching another one here soon. Um, I do work with men, you know, online in that, in that, uh, fashion in my coaching groups, but, and I am, uh, boarded in integrative medicine, so I can work with men. Um, but I don't currently do one-on-one -on -one consults online or telemedicine. So you have to come to Nebraska to see me, but I'm super active on social media. You can find me Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, I've got a website, drfitandfabulous.com. So, and I love hearing people's success stories. I can't give you medical advice online. So don't Instagram me or <laughs> medical history. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure you get that. But I love my followers. I really do. Awesome. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and this was a lot of great information. So thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Hey, Get Lean, Eat Clean Nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day and gain muscle all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well, I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one -on -one with in my Fatburner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards our health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me at brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.